Hey church, so excited to be opening God's word with you and continuing in our series in 2 Corinthians. I just wanted to kick off by saying happy Mother's Day to all the mums and grandmums at our church. Um, I hope that today's a special day for you where you are loved by your families um, and maybe even making the most of the slightly lifted restrictions. Uh, I pray that today's a really special day for you. But as we begin uh, the sermon today, uh, I wonder what comes to mind for you when, when you think of being confident. You know, what comes to mind for you uh, about the idea of being confident? Maybe like me, you've been watching uh, the documentary on Netflix, The Last Dance, about Michael Jordan, and you've been wowed, like I have, about how confident he always seemed to be about taking that game-winning shot. Or maybe you think of that children's story, uh, the little engine that could, uh, that's chugging up that hill and, and keeps going to themselves, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. Maybe you've got an individual you personally know, a, a friend, a colleague, a boss, another parent maybe, somebody you, you look to that, that always just seems to have things together. Early this week, I was watching a TED Talk, and, and the speaker mentioned something pretty interesting. He, he had a personal letter that he would read to himself whenever he was feeling a little down. He called it his self-confidence brag letter. It was a letter he wrote to himself when, when times were better for him. And so he would pull it out whenever times were tough, and he would read on the letter um, a self-congratulation. It said, congratulations on getting your PhD before 40. Congratulations on coaching the soccer team to a national championship. Congratulations on raising three good kids and marrying a good woman. And this speaker relied on this letter to, to weather him through tougher times to help sustain his confidence. Now, I don't know what you think about that, uh, whether it's a great idea or not. Obviously, I'm not critiquing a TED Talk today. Uh, but what we are going to be looking at in a part of the letter that Paul has written addresses this idea of confidence. I mean, how should a Christian think about confidence? What, what difference should it make being someone who follows Jesus? How, how should someone respond to situations that, that take away our confidence? I wonder whether you've ever considered questions like these. The letter of 2 Corinthians is largely about the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthian church that he birthed, a church he spent 18 months with, giving himself, nurturing, discipling, teaching. And now they're at a particular time and place where they've lost confidence in him. They're asking why they should be confident in him, why they should continue to follow him. What credentials does he even have? And the way Paul addresses this idea of confidence, I think, completely turns what they expect about the topic on its head. And as we open God's Word together and hear Him speak, it might surprise you and not be what you expect either. And so, pray with me uh, as we open God's Word together. Heavenly Father, we come before You knowing that You speak uh, that you are a God uh, who is living and breathing. And as we open your word, um, you challenge and convict our lives, uh, the way that we follow you, um, the way that we understand you. And so, Father, I pray that we would have humble hearts to hear you speak to us. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So uh, let's recap so far where we've been in this letter of 2 Corinthians. We've spent a couple of weeks in it. The Corinthians uh, feel like they have reasons to lose confidence in Paul's ministry. Um, and, and Paul, really, he, he's given them a bunch of ammunition for them to at least think that. Right? In, in chapter 1, uh, Paul tells them about the trouble he and others have had to face. Uh, he describes it um, like he's experienced a sentence of death. He's felt like a sentence of death. He shares that he's suffered tremendously. He explains the reasons for why he didn't visit Corinth like he said he would and as he intended to. In chapter 2, he describes being wronged, hurt and broken, that he's experienced great distress and anguish of heart and many tears by people from within uh, the the Corinthian church. And, And that isn't even the full list. But you can probably imagine why the Corinthians might be at least a little bit disappointed by him, right? I mean, this was the church's fearless leader. This was meant to be the almighty Apostle Paul, the pioneer in bringing the gospel beyond Israel. And in a place like Corinth, where their heroes are those with massive muscles and Herculean-sized chests who slay monsters with swords, to have their fearless leader in the gospel appear so weak, so unimpressive, I mean, it's little wonder why the Corinthians flocked to other leaders who have now come along since Paul's last visit. See, compared with Paul, these visitors, they're very impressive. They're eloquent. They're confident. They've come with letters of recommendation, as we'll see in this chapter. They, They just fit the Corinthian ideal so much better than Paul. And so, so how does Paul respond to their lack of confidence in him? Well, Paul's response, it's going to be pretty extensive. It begins here in chapter 2, verse 12, and it's really going to continue right till the end of chapter 7. But in this chapter, uh, Paul begins his response with two statements, which will be the two points we look at today. Um, And so we're going to begin with our first point, uh, that Christian confidence is strongest in suffering. Christian confidence is strongest in in suffering. Paul begins uh, in verse 12 to 13 by kind of just adding even more fuel uh, to the fire that the Corinthian church has against him. Have a look with me at at verses 12 to 13. Uh, Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened the door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. Now, um, he speaks in this situation, in these two verses, about his unfortunate time in this place called Troas. Uh, While he was there, God really opened the door for him to to preach the gospel. And so what that probably means was that there were people there welcoming him. There were people there probably coming to Christ in masses. But even with all that happening, that wasn't what was on Paul's mind. You, You see, Paul, in coming to Troas, was planning to meet his friend Titus there. Now, you might recall that it was Titus who went to Corinth to check up on the church after Paul wrote and sent his pretty painful letter to them. And so Paul wanted to see Titus, to meet with Titus, to to hear about how the church responded to that painful letter. But the problem was, Titus never showed. He never came to Troas. And, And that threw Paul into deep anxiety. 
He, he had no peace of mind. Literally, from the original language, Paul had no rest in his spirit. The pain was so full on, so intense, that he had to leave behind all the amazing gospel opportunities in Troas just to go to Macedonia so he could meet Titus, to hear about the well-being of the Corinthian church. And so, you can understand, Paul writing this part of the letter to the Corinthian church is just piling on another reason why the church feels like they can't have confidence in him, right, anymore. His decision to leave Troas was purely anxiety-driven. Should an apostle even be allowed to leave behind such an incredible gospel opportunity? See, for them, Paul lacks determination. He lacks conviction. He lacks power. And so, why should they have any confidence with all that's happened in his ministry? And yet, Paul sees all of that, all of that suffering, all that anxiety from an entirely different perspective. See, Paul, at the beginning of verse 14, says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. Paul uses an image of a triumphal procession to make sense of everything. Now, just a note about what Paul is talking about here, because triumphal processions are a little bit foreign. See, these profession, pr- processions rather, were these grand ceremonies that happened in Rome after a large-scale war. Um, we have on record over 350 of them uh, during the Roman Empire, and after a grand military win, uh, the Senate would award the Roman general who led the war a triumph. Yeah? Um, so they would have this big public march from the fringe of the city to the center of the city to celebrate the victory. It, it, this isn't the, the most accurate picture, but it's kind of like the city to surf, right? Where all the roads are shut um, to allow for people to parade, run through the center of the city. Um, and so the group of this parade at the front of the processional march were those who had been defeated. Yeah? Um, you're likely talking about the leaders of the defeated country, maybe their best fighters, their dignitaries. Um, they're being paraded to the public on their way to public execution. In the middle of the pack, you'd have all the treasure and spoils of the war from the battle being paraded to all the people. And at the back of the parade, uh, led by the general on a chariot, was the army returning back from war. See, these marches these triumphal processions were all about parading the impressiveness and the strength of the Roman Empire. And yet, when Paul uses this image, perhaps surprisingly, where is Paul? Paul Paul doesn't describe him as the one in the chariot, the general. He He doesn't see himself that way. Paul doesn't even see himself as a foot soldier. No, God is the general. He's the one on the chariot. Paul sees himself instead as one of the captives. He's one of the ones being led to public execution. And it's with this image in mind that Paul gives thanks. He's rejoicing. He's thankful. He's not miserable. Why does Paul think of himself in that way? How how does that even make sense? Well, to answer those questions, the key to understanding it is to get uh, why the captive is marching towards death to begin with. You see, Southwest, when, when the captives march to their deaths, Uh, This was one big show to symbolize the complete defeat of the enemy of the empire. As I said earlier, the captive slaves were often made up of leaders of the defeated country, their dignitaries and their best. And so these captives, as they marched in suffering to their public executions, all of this was a reminder about just how powerful and mighty the empire was. And Paul, 
as he writes to the Corinthians, sees his life and his suffering much like a captive slave in a triumphant possession. Why? Well, you think about Paul's story. Paul began as an enemy of God's people, even putting God's people to death. God completely conquered him, though, at his conversion on the road to Damascus. And since then, God's been leading him as a slave of Christ. In fact, Paul calls himself a slave of Christ more often than any other description. And God is leading him towards death so that Paul can reveal just how majestic and powerful and glorious God is. Do you see what Paul is trying to say? Paul understood everything he had gone through, all the suffering and all the hardship that he'd experienced, that it did take away from God like the Corinthians thought it did. Instead, like a captive showing the power of Rome, his life and his suffering showed the power and glory of God. See, Paul knew that his sufferings didn't condemn God's glory and power. His sufferings, rather, confirmed God's glory and power. He knew it did the complete opposite. And that's why Paul can say, thanks be to God, at the beginning of verse 14. Paul is a willing and thankful captive because it is through his weakness, his conqueredness, that God's power is on display through him. Now, how, how does God do that? Right? How does God do that? Well, Paul completes his thought in the rest of uh, verses 14 and 15. Have a read with me. Verses 14 and 15. But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession, and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. You see, church, uh, we are the pleasing aroma of Christ. And, and God spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Jesus through us, particularly in our weakness. Paul isn't uh, making some command here, going, you must be the aroma of Christ, or go and be more like the aroma of Christ. No, Paul is simply stating that to them and to us, in our suffering and in our weakness, we are the aroma of Christ. It's, it's simply a matter of fact. Now, why is that the case? Why might suffering and weakness spread the knowledge of Him everywhere? Why is it in our sufferings particularly uh, that we are the aroma of Christ? Well, it's because it follows the pattern of Jesus, yeah? It follows the pattern of Jesus. See, Jesus suffered and endured to even greater levels, didn't He? I mean, He was and is the suffering servant. Nobody looking at Jesus as He was dying on the cross had any idea that the most powerful saving moment in all human history was taking place. Nobody looking at the cross could see that God was working so powerfully in and through something so dark, so shameful, and so evil. The events that took place at the cross of Jesus were the most powerful and glorious moment. And yet at the same time, it also looked like Jesus' biggest failure, weakness, defeat, and shame. You see, Paul, Paul knew this. And so he also knew that in his suffering, in his weakness, he was simply following the pattern of his Savior. His life mirrored the aroma and fragrance of Jesus, his Master. And to God, that aroma smells so, so good. Southwest, I, I, I wonder, have you ever considered that God might be using 
even your personal sufferings, to spread the knowledge of Him. Because we often don't think about that with our sufferings, do we? We don't think that far. In our suffering, maybe we might cry out to God, Why? Why me? Or or where are you? Um, Maybe we might try to seek comfort from Him. Maybe we might even wrestle with what He's trying to teach us and and grow us uh, through that time. But we don't often think of our suffering and our weaknesses as as God's way of spreading the knowledge of Him everywhere. It's, It's not exactly your typical evangelism strategy, is it? Now, I want to be really careful because I don't want to make little of the difficulty of people's personal sufferings, anxieties, and pain. And, you know, I also don't want to make little of the societal suffering during the pandemic that we're presently experiencing and the impacts that it's having on all our lives, whether big or small. But, Southwest, God not only wants to comfort you in your sufferings because He's the Father of all compassion, He also wants to use you through your sufferings and weakness to spread the knowledge of Him. Even in the depths of your sufferings and weakness, you might be the aroma of Christ spreading knowledge of Him everywhere. And and so while the suffering still remains difficult and intense, there is an incredible confidence in discovering God's power in the midst of weakness and suffering. There is incredible confidence in discovering He will use you, especially in your weakness. It's little wonder that Paul's so confident. It's it's little wonder that he's trying to show the Corinthians that it's worthwhile following the pattern of Jesus. I love how one preacher puts it. Since dependence is the objective, weakness is the advantage. Since dependence is the objective, weakness is the advantage. We can have utmost confidence Because God is powerfully at work, even in our most troubling of times. Now, with all that being said, Paul's not naive, right? Paul knows that being the aroma of Christ means not everybody is going to like you. Being the aroma of Christ doesn't mean winning popularity contests and having approval across the board. When the smell of durian wafts in the air, you're either running towards it or you're running away from it. And much like the fragrance of the king of fruits, the aroma of Jesus, it's a a divisive one. Verse 16 really spells that out for us. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. See, what's the point of that verse? Not everybody is going to love you for being the aroma of Christ. You will face opposition. How do we know that's true? We'll just look at Jesus' own life on earth in in the Gospels. That's exhibit A, really, right? Now, this is far from a perfect example, but I remember during the bushfire season, which feels like an eternity ago now, uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison was absolutely slammed for saying that he was praying for those impacted by the fires. Now, I understand that as Prime Minister, there are particular things that are in your power that can be a very practical help to the needy. I also understand that he wrongly went on a holiday during the crisis. I also understand that you know, being a Christian isn't the most popular worldview to have in the 21st century. But regardless of your political leaning, right, the vitriol that was shown to him across just about every media platform for even saying that he would pray, it was really intense. 
See, Southwest, to, to the perishing, we smell like a deadly cyanide. But to those who are saved, to those who are on the path to being saved, we smell like life-giving oxygen. We are like life-giving oxygen. Friends, incredibly, there are people who, in coming in contact with you, have the potential to know God because God will spread the knowledge of Christ to them through you, in spite of your weakness. There is incredible confidence in the way that He will use you to shift the eternity of souls and further His purposes in the world. There is incredible confidence that comes from discovering God's power, even in our toughest moments. And so, we've looked at our first point. Uh, so let's now move on to our second point. That, that Christian confidence doesn't come from ourselves. Christian confidence doesn't come from ourselves. Um, so the Apostle Paul, he's begun his reply to the Corinthians, lack of confidence in him. He said that he's like a slave in the sense that God is powerfully at work in his weaknesses and sufferings. He, like us, um, we're like the aroma of Christ that God is spreading among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. And so the question Paul naturally asks next is, I mean, who is equal to such a task? Who, who, is, who is equal to the task of being used by God like that? What qualifies you to have such a role? How can you be even confident of, of, of doing something like that? And Paul dedicates the rest of our passage today uh, to answering that exact question. His implied reply from really the rest of the passage to that hypothetical question is, I am. I am equal to such a task. Right? What makes Paul so confident? Why can he say something like that? Now, because of time, I'm, I'm just going to quickly run through the logic of Paul's answer from the passage, and then I'm going to slow down uh, and, and think about verses 4 to 6 of chapter 3 uh, together. Now, he answers the hypothetical question, who, who is equal to such a task, by, by saying, I am up to it. And he answers that in two parts, yeah, uh, before he gets to the heart of his confidence. So quickly then, the first part of his I am up to an answer. Uh, in verse 17, um, Paul looks at the way that the teachers who oppose him in Corinth treat the ministry of teaching the Word of God. And he describes them as, as peddling the Word of God for profit. Right? Now, they, they peddle it. That, that original word uh, for peddle um, uh, was, was most often used for people who uh, watered down pure vintage wine and then sold it at market price to make a buck, right? They were whipping people off. Uh, that's what the word pedal was used for. Uh, they, so, so these teachers in Corinth, they, they're treating their ministry as something to, to gain from. They're, they're acting as scammers and cheaters in their ministry, Paul's saying. And so they're deceiving the church financially and morally. Paul says that unlike them, though, he in Christ speaks with sincerity as those sent from God. He courageously calls a spade a spade. He lovingly calls out sin when he sees it. He generously doesn't take any financial contribution, even though it would have been right for him to receive it. He truthfully calls the church to account when they are living lives of holiness or Christ-like character. And no doubt the church in Corinth would have seen this in action in the 18 months that he was there with them when the church first began, and even in the numerous letters that he's written to them since. And so that's the first part of his answer to I am equal to the task, because 
He doesn't peddle the word of God. He speaks as one with sincerity, as one sent from God. That's the first part. The second part of his answer, why he says he is up to the task, is in the first three verses of chapter 3. He goes on from speaking about the conduct of his ministry as one sent from God to now the work of God in the life of the church in Corinth. So Paul, he looks at the teachers there again who's opposing him, who are leading the church astray there. Um, uh, These guys have come with these letters of recommendation uh, to, to the church to show them that they can be trusted and they're credible. And Paul's asking the Corinthian church, do you need me to do that as well? Do you need a letter of recommendation from me? And his answer to them is, of course you don't. Of course you don't. Why? Verse 2 of chapter 3. You yourselves are our letter. Now he goes on, and I'm paraphrasing here. Um, He goes on to say, I know it internally that you are my letter in my heart. And and people outside and external know and see that you are my letter. So, So why can't you see why should I need a letter of recommendation? You know, it's almost like he's saying, look at what happened among you at Corinth. Look at what happened in your church. Before I arrived, Paul says, there were no believers here. But now, see what God has done among you since we've arrived. In a city known for its uh, immorality and its crime, there are now, there's now a church of people who trust and love Jesus, who have repented from their ways and commit to following him. God did a real work of conversion and transformation among you through my ministry. I know so many of you by name and by face from my time there. I've seen you publicly. I've seen you privately. I'm a spiritual father to you. It was not easy. It was not smooth. There were many times of disappointment. And now, as a community of believers, you have the spirit of the living God living in you. You are my letter of recommendation. In his first letter to the Corinthians in the Bible, Paul refers to the church as the result of my work in the Lord and the seal of my apostleship. Paul truly loved this church. In Corinthians, all they had to do was just look at themselves to see that Paul was truly worth being confident in. Now, on the Southwest, what do you make of Paul's answer? There's two parts. What What do you make of it? Because You know, at first glance, you could see Paul's answers to why he might be equal to the task as a little overconfident, maybe even a little arrogant, right? He compares himself with the character of these other teachers. He compares his work among them as solid proof of his ministry compared to these trivial letters of recommendation that these other teachers have. But if you look closely, if you look closely, there's a pattern to all his answers that will come very apparent uh, when we look at some of those verses we just looked at. If you flip back to verse 17 of chapter 2, Paul doesn't just speak with sincerity on his own. It's in Christ he speaks with sincerity as one sent from God. If you jump down to verse 3 of chapter 3, yes, the Corinthian church are Paul's letter of recommendation, but they are firstly a letter from Christ, and then they are a result of his ministry. See, the Corinthian church, yes, they are the letter, But Paul kind of knows that it's Christ who wrote the letter and he's kind of just like the postman who delivers it. And so church, do you see? Underlying all of Paul's responses isn't some overconfidence or arrogance. Underlying his answer and his confidence isn't a confidence in himself. It's a confidence in Christ. It's a deep, unshakable confidence in Christ. 
And it's why he finishes this present thought that he has with verses 4 to 6. Right, read it with me. Such confidence, chapter 3, 4 to 6, such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. See, friends, confidence for Paul and confidence for the Christian, ultimately, it doesn't come from within us. And if you're anything like me, boy, do we need to be reminded of that reality. There is just such a premium on whether we are confident or not in just about every aspect of life, isn't there? It's like we're either confident or we're not. We're either adequate or we're inadequate. We either have high self-esteem or low self-esteem. But there are problems with thinking this way. There are, there are problems either way uh, by thinking this way, really. Because at the heart of it, the premium on whether we're confident or not, it really depends on how you think about yourself. That, that's what it depends on. It depends entirely on how you think about yourself. Right? We see that all the time, don't we? I mean, for those who have low confidence, what's the solution? More often than not, we, we tell them to fix it by getting a higher self-esteem. We, we tell them how great they are. We, we tell them how wonderful they are. We, we tell them to look at their accomplishments again and to stop worrying about other people's thoughts and opinions so that they might think differently of themselves. That's for people with low self-esteem. But it's even true for those with too high self-esteem. If, if we're bold, we might tell them to maybe learn to fail. We tell them that there's always somebody better than them. We, we tell them to be less prideful or less arrogant or to lower them from their perch so that they think differently of themselves. See, to borrow an analogy that I've read, in some ways, all we're doing is, is we're constantly inflating and deflating a balloon and then inflating and deflating the balloon some more. Right, we're just pumping meaningless air in and out of a balloon. Ultimately, Getting confidence like that, that's fragile. It's unsatisfying. It, it, it's empty. It, it doesn't last. See, see, friends, ultimately, what you think of yourself isn't going to give you a deep confidence that holds. Even in this account, right? Whether Paul thought he was confident in himself, that mattered to the Corinthians, didn't it? For the opposing teachers in Corinth, it mattered that they were confident in themselves. But what about Paul? Does he think like that? No. His confidence wasn't from having a huge self-confidence in himself or a total lack of confidence in himself. His confidence constantly came through Christ as he came to know and rely on Him. His confidence didn't come from within himself. It came outside of Him. His confidence came from Jesus. It is in Christ, it is from Christ that he's able to be confident in his ministry and in the work that he does. And so just like it's true for Paul, it's also true for us. Now, friends, this isn't a new idea, right? If you follow Jesus, this was also the case when it came to your salvation, when it came to your conversion, right? One of the illustrations that um, we often use at Fresh, a course for people investigating Christianity, is we talk about two people boarding a plane at the same time, right? The first person, he's flown a billion times. His frequent flyer points are, are at the most premium status, um, 
The second person has never flown ever, right? She's maybe sick to her stomach uh, and always has a vomit bag in front of her, the whole leg of the flight. And the question is, does it make a difference to whether you get there or not, to the destination? And the answer is, of course it doesn't, right? It doesn't matter how confident you feel or how unconfident you feel. If you are confident enough in the pilot, in the plane, and if you're confident enough to hop on the plane, you'll get there regardless of how you're feeling. And so from the very moment of your salvation, your confidence was in Christ, not yourself. No matter how strong or weak your faith was, you believe that if you trusted in Jesus, that that would be enough. And so, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, our confidence shouldn't change uh, when it comes to the rest of our lives either. The, the principle remains the same. Through Christ, it's not about thinking more or less differently about yourself. It's about thinking about yourself less, coming to God and seeing from Him and in Him that He is the source of our immovable and unshakable confidence. And so, friends, as we close, we are not sufficient to be the aroma of Christ, just like Paul isn't sufficient to be. We are not sufficient to think that anything should come from us. We have no spiritual power in ourselves. It's God who leads us in triumphal procession. It's, it's God that uses our weakness and suffering. It's God who spreads the aroma of Christ, irrespective of how we feel about ourselves or how we evaluate ourselves. Our confidence comes from and is directed to God. Amen.